This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, there's a new job for former CMS Administrator Marilyn Tavener. The person who led the rollout for the Affordable Care Act is now heading the association representing the insurance industry. Tavener has been chosen to lead America's Health Insurance Plans, or AHIP, the trade group that represents the nation's health insurers, an industry that's still recalibrating itself since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. She was instrumental in the creation of the passage of the ACA, and of course, she has been in the hot seat during some troublesome times during the launch of the marketplaces, which got off to a very rocky start. It's also somewhat ironic, Mark, that many of the new rules that she oversaw while at CMS have actually led to greater restrictions on how insurance companies can function from the rates they are able to charge to the profits they can accrue uh, to the way they have to cover certain services. Of course, at the time of the passage of the health care law, insurance companies were in the habit of increasing their rates by double digits annually. Well, the new healthcare marketplace is experiencing a lot of shifts with large insurance companies merging with competitors. We're reading that in the papers uh, mm-hmm. every day. The biggest companies consolidating and small companies struggling in the wake of so many new requirements. So I think we can expect to see more change in the health insurance landscape as the Affordable Care Act continues to hold sway over the industry. And, you know, some analysts uh, that we've talked to see this move as a sign that the insurance industry is uh, capitulating somewhat and is transitioning towards a more conciliatory stance regarding the health law and its many rules and regulations now governing them. Well, Tavener herself has said that her own appointment as chief lobbyist for the insurance industry is a signal that the industry is looking ahead to new opportunities at a time when both access to care and affordability and really value are vital tools in improving the nation's health. Another tool to improve health, Margaret, is health information technology, uh, something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. The last time Susanna Fox was with us, uh, Mark, she was the director of the Internet Project at Pew, analyzing the intersection of health and the Internet. And she's taken that expertise to the top in human services, and we're really excited to have her back on the show. And Laurie Robinson, of course, will stop by. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And if you have comments, also email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll go to our interview with Susanna Fox in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. Taxes and the health care law. According to the federal government, 7.5 million Americans paid an average $200 fine for not gaining insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act in 2014. While that seems high, three-fourths of the 102 million tax returns processed so far by the IRS showed those filers had checked the box indicating they had insurance. The penalties for those not covered in 2015 will go up significantly, and open enrollment is already closed for the year. The fine for not being covered in 2014 was $95, or 1% of income. 
And end-of-life care is finding more acceptance in a medical arena, especially for older Americans dealing with life-threatening illnesses, while statistics show the conversation is being had, and power of attorney and other patient wishes are being registered in greater numbers. A recent study showed there's still much aggressive care being given, for instance, to cancer patients than what their care preference had suggested they wanted. The findings published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Oncology showed clinicians still willing to perform more critical care interventions at the end stage. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and American Medical Association have come to agreement on how best to approach care directives in these end-of-life discussions. And they say sitting is the new smoking. But what's an overworked, over-screen-timed, car-commuting average American worker supposed to do about all this abundance of deadly sitting? It could be as simple as a two-minute stroll. Researchers at the University of Utah gathered data from more than 3,000 adult participants, how much they sat, stood, exercised, and what they ate during the day. What they found was unexpected. A low-intensity activity like standing by itself had little effect on mortality risk, But those who walked around after standing, replacing some of their sitting time with a light-intensity activity like strolling, gained a substantial benefit in terms of mortality risk. In fact, if they replaced as little as two minutes of sitting each hour with gentle walking, they lowered their risk of premature death by about 33% compared with people who sat almost nonstop. So, you know how the song goes, Get Up, Stand Up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. And go take a stroll. Up, I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. Stand up for your right. We're speaking today with Susanna Fox, newly installed Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she oversees the adoption of new technology-based solutions to common health challenges. Ms. Fox was recently entrepreneur-in-residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where she worked to develop new ways to deliver solutions in healthcare. Prior to that, Ms. Fox served for 14 years as the Associate Director of the Internet Project at the Pew Research Center, where she helped quantify the growing impact on the Internet on health. Uh, She earned her degree in anthropology at Wesleyan University. Susanna, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and you know, you've had some great purchases and opportunities to sort of watch over the enormous uh, change that's happened in our culture, and particularly when you were at the associate director at the uh, 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 Pew uh, Foundation, where you focused in on how Americans of all demographics had uh, begun to use the internet to as a conduit and tool to understand their own health issues better. And now you've been installed as first woman to uh, be the chief technology officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Congratulations. And uh, so you've you've got some wisdom from uh, your experience at Pew. And, uh, you know, we always seem to be at this interesting juncture. So maybe you can talk to us about how that change is going on and what are some of the big challenges remaining Uh, to facilitate sort of the more practical adoption of health information technology in healthcare? Well, the way that I see it and what I was able to talk about when when I was interviewing for the job was to talk about the changes that I've seen in the industry over the last 15 years where we saw how the Internet has democratized access to information and 
the Department of Health and Human Services has um, at the same time democratized access to health data. That was something that my predecessor, the first CTO of HHS, Todd Park, um, created, and that is the open health data movement here at HHS. And, um, and, and that is just an incredible change where people, regular citizens and entrepreneurs, have access to health data. And what I bring to this role is an understanding that the Internet also um, gives us access to each other, that the social revolution is also one that is taking place and is changing the conversation about health and human services in some very interesting ways where people are learning from each other, whether it's patients who share the same condition, caregivers who are at the same life stage, for example, caring for an older parent, um, as well as um, policymakers who can learn from each other about innovation. And that's really what I do here now at the Innovation Lab, the Idea Lab. Well, Susanna, we certainly uh, had great regard for your predecessor, Todd Parks, and his uh, mantra of liberating the data became one of our slogans here at the <laughs> Health Center. So you're following in some wonderful footsteps there. But, you know, you use the word uh, learning uh, there in your comments a moment ago, and you've been very clear that one of your missions in this new role as the chief technology officer is to develop this learning system of health information technology, which should be adaptable from the patient perspective and the provider perspective and the policymaker perspective. And I, I think we'd agree we're probably still in early stages on those goals. So maybe describe for us how the Internet and health information technology are in the process of shaping a more functional learning system for health beyond the systems that we currently have. What I see um, sitting here as the chief technology officer, uh, which, by the way, the, the role is a, is a wonderful one, where I help to run the IDEA Lab, and I also advise the secretary and the deputy secretary about where health and technology are going. And if you think about it as a, as a funnel, a downstream funnel, we're going to continue to open up that funnel so more information flows from clinicians and from researchers down to citizens. The future is when we are able to start to allow the information that individuals hold about their own health, when we're able to allow that to flow up into the clinical system, into the research system, mm. um, where we start to remove the false barrier between home and clinic. Because of course, when we talk about patient-centered healthcare, that really does put the individual at the center and acknowledges that they have as much to say about their health and certainly are the ones who make the decisions about whether to stay on their meds and when to see a doctor, when to get those preventive services that they need. Mm -hmm. And understanding that um, we need to um, give people the information that they need, we need to open up the funnel of information that flows down to individuals, but we also need to start to think about how can information flow up into the system? Hmm. Speaking of the future, you recently presided over the third annual Health Data Palooza. This is a gathering of health IT entrepreneurs and developers bringing their innovative ideas and tech expertise into the uh, health IT mashup, as it's called, designed to sort of create new solutions. Uh, tell us a little more about the Data Palooza this year. What kinds of innovations caught your attention? Uh, and how they might truly help power innovation. 
it was actually my first week of work, um, <laughs> and it was a, it was a wonderful way to start because I have been part of the Health Data Palooza community since the beginning. We thought um, the the community of health data geeks, as I like to call them, we all knew that there was there was some value. Um, and what's very cool about it is that the accelerant that was poured on the fire of health data was cloud computing, that we now are able to take in these big data sets and analyze them. Um, And that's something that is really exciting. And and that's, you know, innovation happens when, you know, the rules of the game change or a new technology is invented. And the rules of the game changed when Todd Park and HHS released the data and and created the data liberation movement. Mm -hmm. So this year, one of the innovators that, that I was really intrigued by was a startup called Cuveda, which is looking to provide more precise genetic mutations um, for people with cancer. And that fits in with the president's initiative on precision medicine. I would see it as, again, an opening up of the funnel of, of information that can flow from the clinic and flow from the from the research side directly to benefit individuals. Hmm. Another initiative that, that came out of, actually started at the VA was when Peter Levin was the CTO at the VA, is the Blue Button Initiative. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see the, the potential of data liquidity, that the data really should flow directly to the individual so that they can keep an electronic copy so that when they get a second opinion, they have the basics of a health record. You know, how can we expand the potential of the Blue Button Initiative? I I want to um, pick up on something you referenced a few moments ago, the idea lab that was developed by HHS to foster innovation from within. And and the idea lab falls under your purview as the chief technology officer. And I understand this year's winners were recently announced. So Tell us who the winners were and, and what made their proposed innovation so powerful. Um, I have to give credit to my immediate predecessor. It's Brian Civic, who is the CTO who created right. the Idea Lab. Mm-hmm. And indeed, he is, um, Todd and Brian and I all share the DNA of, of entrepreneurship that, you know, we, we want to constantly be experimenting and, and the Idea Lab is a way to nurture that um, innovative spirit that actually is pretty common, more common than you think in the federal government. There are internal entrepreneurs all over the place. And the HHS Innovates program is one where we're able to recognize people from all across HHS who have created something innovative, who um, have, have sort of met a barrier and just blown right through it. And the winners this year were um, a pretty diverse group, and, and what I like about it is that it shows how innovation can happen in operations, it can happen in um, direct healthcare delivery, and um, it can also happen when there's new technology coming forward. Um, an example of the, the new technology coming forward that was recognized by the Innovates program this year was the NIH 3D print exchange. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm really interested in the maker movement and think that the um, accelerant that's going to get thrown on this fire 
is the um, ever cheaper manufacturing tools. Hmm. Um, you know, you can go to a tech shop and have access to incredible manufacturing tools. And um, 3D Print Exchange, it's a portal so that people who share an interest in health-related 3D printing, if they come up with a template that really works, like for, for example, a prosthetic hand, mm -hmm. People can download the template, and if, if they have access to a 3D printer, they can, they can do that themselves. Um, and that is something that I see a, a wonderful role for government to, to point the way. Um, almost all the teams were cross-disciplinary and cross-agency. You know, all the innovation that I've been watching in Silicon Valley and all across the country in terms of the external entrepreneurs and the startup companies that really want to change healthcare for the better, we see the same spirit here in the federal government. And that's why it's so exciting and such a great opportunity that I couldn't resist Absolutely. <laughs> to be part of the Idea Lab. Great. We're speaking today with Susanna Fox, Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she oversees the adoption of new technology-based solutions to common health challenges. Susanna, I have a 13-year-old, and I'd say he's part of this uh, group where digital is part of their DNA. But you've also spent uh, a lot of time uh, thinking about part of the baby boomers. And you've noted that seniors are actually much more engaged in technology than people think. Can you tell our listeners about the growing trend among baby boomer generations uh, who are seeking health information on the Internet? We have such a wonderful opportunity in that there are so many people who are using the Internet to educate themselves, to gain access to the information that they need to make the best health decision that they can at the time. And the baby boom generation is indeed now one of the most wired generations. They're transforming the stereotype of the of the offline older adult. We still need to be sensitive to the fact that um, among people 75, 80, and above who are significantly less likely to use the Internet, education is actually a stronger predictor for whether someone has access to the Internet rather than age. Um, but also disability increases with age. And so once someone is, starts to experience low vision, mm -hmm. they're less likely to be able to really navigate, certainly using a smartphone. As our population ages, what the opportunity presents to us is a chance to learn from older adults. Usability studies show that if a website is optimized for older users, everyone navigates it more quickly. Huh, and so how might we learn from that? The demographics show that, that this is a challenge that's going to be with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think we should see it as an opportunity. It sort of aligns with uh, your early work analyzing the Internet as a portal for the engaged patient, uh, which I think it's fair to say has earned you kind of a rock star status among the engaged <laughs> patient population. And we've had uh, e-patient Dave DeBroncart on the show and describing his passion for the engaged patient movement based on his own really very inspirational story. And I, some would say the engaged patient is still something of a fledgling movement. I actually think it's probably moved past that. Uh, but it is vital to the continued transformation of healthcare. Uh, some have called it, in fact, the blockbuster drug of the 20th century, something that really has the potential to change things, and we hear these clarion cries for liberate the data. So maybe uh, you could talk this a, a bit about the Society for Participatory Medicine and this growing e-patient movement. 
So the Society for Participatory Medicine is something that grew out of um, the e-patient movement, which was started, um, the, the term e-patient was actually um, created by my mentor, Tom Ferguson, who was a Yale-trained MD, um, who believed that people should be in the driver's seat of their own health. He would talk about how um, we shouldn't blame people if, if we never give them driver's education and they crash their car into a wall, you know, whose fault is that? And so we need to provide people with the information that they need to, to make the best decisions that they can about their health. So the E in e-patient means all sorts of things, empowered, engaged, and um, it, it can also, of course, mean electronic because the magic of participating in your own health means that you would have access to your own data. And that's part of the Blue Button Initiative that originated here in the federal government. Um, and that is the idea that um, there should be a simple way for you to download the basic information about your data. And, and what we're looking to do now is expand it so that people have access to this data and um, we want to make sure that the data is then made useful. And so um, we're working to free the data so in the same way that, that we freed other kinds of data in, in the health da open health data movement so that patients can have access to, um, for example, apps that, that would um, make it easier for them to manage their health. And at the center of this is a sense, again, of um, patient autonomy and data liquidity. And those are the goals, and, and by the way, that goal comes down from President Obama and from Secretary Burwell. They believe in the power of people having access to information and making choices about their health. That's part of what the Precision Medicine Initiative is all about. Um, my colleagues over um, in the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT they're the ones who are, are building the map, who, who are in charge of um, creating the, um, the systems that, that um, if we want data liquidity, then we need to build systems that are interoperable. Um, for my part, as Chief Technology Officer and Director of the, the IDEA Lab, what, what I'm able to do is um, talk about ways that we can build in these ideas and, um, for example, um, bring outside expertise like entrepreneurs and residents and innovators and residents so that we can continue to illuminate ways that data can make a difference in people's lives. Well, that is very exciting. And as you've described, uh, your role really uh, to bring that spotlight or be a beacon for, for transforming uh, the work being done both inside and outside of the government. T tell us, uh, if you can, some of what the roadmap will look like over the next uh, year or so as you as you lay out these opportunities. Uh, obviously, the data palooza is over, but what are the what should people be marking on their calendars, and who should they be keeping an eye on? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so one of the initiatives that, that we're working on, um, it's, it's pretty geeky, but, but I think that, that people who are into health data will really appreciate it. Um, it's a new initiative called Demand Driven Open Data, ddod.us is the um, website. 
And that is bringing um, the lean startup method to the open data movement where um, in the past we would um, upload data sets um, to healthdata.gov and data.gov and um, it, it was sort of on our own um, schedule and, and um, you know, what seemed to make sense to us in the federal government internally. What ddod.us will do is um, just what the name implies, demand-driven. We want to hear from users. We want to hear from our customers about what are the data sets that, that, um, that are going to be the most useful and what are the use cases um, for those data sets. And that's going to help the federal government be more service-oriented, more customer service-oriented as we continue to free the data. Um, and I should also say that we are um, recruiting right now for some entrepreneur and innovator in residence positions. Um, so if anybody listening is interested in helping the government in these areas, um, please come to the HHS Idea Lab website and check out the job listings because um, the deadlines are coming up fast in August. We've been speaking today with Susanna Fox, newly installed Chief Technology Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. You can learn more about her work by going to hhs.gov or follow her on Twitter by uh, going to at HHS Idea Lab or at Susanna Fox. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It was my pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Is Medicaid bad for your health? That's what Republican presidential candidate and Senator Ted Cruz said. He claimed that health outcomes are, quote, markedly worse when people get on Medicaid. Fellow candidate Rick Perry said health outcomes were no better for those on Medicaid compared with those without insurance. And President Obama claimed the opposite, saying that the Medicaid expansion of the Affordable Care Act improves people's health. Evidence is on Obama's side. But all three politicians actually point to the same study in making these claims. That study, published in 2013, is called the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. It took advantage of a Medicaid expansion in Oregon that was based on lottery drawings to compare those who got Medicaid with those who didn't. There were several conclusions. Researchers found no significant improvements in blood pressure, cholesterol, and glycated hemoglobin levels after two years. Perry focuses on that finding, but there could be other health improvements that the study didn't measure or that could show up after a longer time period. The study also found increased use of health care, higher rates of diabetes detection and management, and lower rates of depression, a finding the White House singles out. Another study on Medicaid expansions in certain states found a reduction in mortality rates, and a 2013 Kaiser Family Foundation report on the breadth of academic study concluded, quote, having Medicaid is much better than being uninsured. For more on these claims, see our website at factcheck.org. I'm Lori Robertson, Fact Check's Managing Editor. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. 
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Instead, show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a randomized study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And we showed them basically a full menu with all items. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then a, finally a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure with miles to walk, so it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. When you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020. When you were shown calories only, the average order was 927 calories. And when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. The results of the initial study were so conclusive, they're now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.